welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. Hey Perry, welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. How are we doing? Uh, good, thanks, Danny. Yeah, it's um, a, a cold day here in Maine, but um, I think there's a, a definite warmth in terms of uh, opportunities that are coming through work-wise. So uh, yeah, temperature might be cool, but but work is hot. This is good. This is good to hear. Good to hear. So, mm. Perry, before we mm. get into it, I guess I ask people to come up with a bit of a logline or a bit of a, mm. a brief over the top summary about, you know, about them. What What's yours? So uh, I suppose when I think about it as a whole life type thing, um, that makes it more challenging. I think I'm probably more comfortable describing the professional me than the whole me. Okay. Even though I often say there's not much difference between them. So I guess my logline would be... Um, driven by enthusiasm, uh, unashamedly positive, um, helpful and well-intended, uh, and always had an appetite for learning. That's oh my, my love okay. okay. This is interesting. And just for anyone who's listening, um, I think Perry's at the train station, so that isn't a, a violent <laughs> echo. It's just, it's just where yeah. Perry is at the moment. So... Perry, when when you was in school and the teacher would say to you, Perry, what is it you want to be when you grow up? What what yeah. what was the answer you'd give him? Um, I think at the time, because of uh, like in learning, I thought teaching might be quite cool. Um, <laughs> but I think what turned me off of it as I got older is that I realised how difficult it is with pupils um, of a particular age. So I thought mm, maybe I can't control a group of unruly students. Um, so yeah, teaching was the first option uh, and then I was quite interested in writing so journalism was an option and then I thought that you have to write sometimes horrible stuff about people and that didn't appeal to me much either um, then the next bit in me that was sort of invoked by that was uh, an interest in the law um, not from a persecution sense but in a more um, protecting people's rights and privileges and defending causes and stuff so yeah, so I had that little trilogy of teaching, journalism, and law. Um, uh, but yeah, my initial response was teaching. All right, awesome. So, Perry, just before we kind of jump into the you know the nitty gritty of questions, mm. Um, mm. I need you to pick four random numbers from one to a hundred for me, please. Okay, sixty-seven. Yeah. Thirteen. Okay. Eighteen, and twenty-two. Twenty-two. Awesome. We will come back to them later on down the line. Okay. So I guess Perry, from you know, I know I know all about you um, and Babs mm. put me in touch with you and kind of, you know, mm. and then since then we've I've kind of been social stalking you in in the best <laughs> possible way. Um, so yeah. I guess maybe for the people, the listeners who don't know who who Perry Timms is, maybe give us a bit yeah. of a, a brief insight into kind of you, your bio, where you've come from, to where you are right now. Yeah. So I'll probably go back about twenty twenty five years. I worked in the civil service. Um, the, the law thing led me to the court service, so I was working on the other side of the justice coin. Um, I found myself working on IT-enabled change projects, so um, scoping new technology, testing it, and then working with people uh, on the training side about how they use this new tech, and that got me into learning. Um, so I moved from there into a learning development role, so I've been in an HR learning role for about 15 years. I was head of L&D, uh, then I became head of OD and talent at the Big Lottery Fund, which was not for profit area. Um, that opened me from training programs into wider things around org design, around culture values, leadership, and all sorts of things. I got really interested in self-managed teams and democratic organizations around about 2010. Um, so I've always had an interest in those. Um, and I tried to bring some of that principle into the learning team that I led at the time. Um, and then a couple of years after discovering that, I got a little bit sort of, I suppose you'd say, restless in the corporate world. And I left to set up on my own. Uh, so I've been PTHR since 2012, um, and now I've got a book to my name uh, called Transformation HR. Uh, I do a bit of global speaking. I've got some international clients, um, 
uh, and uh, I was voted onto HR's most influential list by HR magazine readers in 2017. So, yeah, it's um, it's a varied, uh, a very interesting and stimulating journey I've had, um, and I'm glad it's not over yet. Perfect, perfect. And I guess the, the book we'll talk about it and just later mm. on down the line. But um, mm. but just it, it's there's two things which really jump out for me, and the things probably mm. is, is kind of why I'm interested in in, in Perry Tims. Mm. Um, so for me. Two of my massive interests are people development. When I say mm. people development, you can wrap up that into kind of, you know, your learning development, your design, your delivery, and maybe, you know, mm. the future of learning. But mm. then another aspect which I'm really interested in is HR. But when mm. I say HR, I mean like future place, workplace mm. HR, mm. and more importantly, kind of more around the employee experience from the start, yeah. i.e. the onboarding, the, the kind yeah. of touch points and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I guess let's let's just open up with that one then. So what what do you think the future of learning and development is first? Yeah, wow. Um, so there's a sixty-four million dollar one. Well, I suppose it's less of some of the things that I think of perhaps boxed in L and D professionals a bit, like uh, order taking, program build, um, uh, obsession with return on investment. Uh, fixation on models like 7 to 2010 so i think it's less of those and i think it's probably more of what what do people in the world of work want and need from uh, professional learning advisors coaches guides designers creators um uh, and so on and i think i don't think we ask that question well enough now i think we've talked ourselves into a range of different mindsets and models and theories uh, and then when people come to us and say, hmm, I'm, I've, I think I've got a need here and I'm struggling to, you know, do it. Can I get some training? We go, oh, look, ah, yeah, it fits that model and theory. Yeah, let's give you that. And I think we need less of that kind of diagnosis and more inventive, co-creative, um, uh, different deployables. I don't know, those kind of things. So, so whether that sounds like it's a more consultative model, perhaps it is. Um, I think it's more about... Um, people being more involved in the design and the test and the delivery and the evaluation of it and i don't just mean the learning team i mean learners leaders um and and people who are like the uh the ultimate consumers of learning so if a, a manager comes to you as a learning professional and goes right i've got some conflict in my team i'm not very good at dealing with it how can you help me and then you work together and create a program of support and challenge and experiences and some mentoring and whatever then the consumers of that product are that leader's team uh, so it's not that the, it stops with the leader and then it's about them it's the consumers of that new product that you've built which is that better leader that more capable leader so uh, there, there's some of those things i don't think we do enough of um, so i guess it's it's more intricate, it's less box stuff, it's less predictable, it's more adaptable, inventive, creative. Um, and I guess we're seeing some of that happen in the entertainment world where, you know, you used to have media presented to you in one format, now we've got it in all sorts of subscriptions, downloads, streams, uh, live, uh, all that kind of thing. So I often think the learning world is a little bit more unusable. Okay, so. So we touched upon quite a few things there. So let's just let's just jump into kind of you know the, the massive, overbearing focus on return of investment and stuff like that. Yeah. I guess you know I am I'm, I'm a firm believer of return of investment is while I understand it is it's need to a point. There's yeah. the fact of the over need on this and you know fundamentally for me we should really be kind of looking at how how let's manage our engagement with you know comms in, in general i mean if our people are actually engaging within the learning then yeah. you can you can you can kind of look at return of investment as much as you like but fundamentally yeah. our people aren't aren't really seeking out or are actually touching with with our learning intervention let's say so how how what what other ways do you see of other than kind of roi return of investment how other ways do you kind of prove it's worth so to speak yeah i think I'd want to look a little bit at how we've even got to this situation, where this obsession slash hijack came from. So um, it, it probably was in the corporate world, people who had budgetary responsibility from finance, who were the greatest will in the world, are always going to ask you two-dimensional questions. You know, what's in and what's out? 
what's it cost and what's it geared? Whereas actually we know it's a lot more three-dimensional, if not even multi-dimensional. And it's, it's not as simple as I gave them this new knowledge and a skill, and that has resulted in uh, profit or um, you know, efficiency or whatever. Um, I think we know the world's so complex, you just can't prove that causal trail. So I, I guess there's something about impact that I think we ought to think about more than the investment. So um, we could take people at an individual level, collective level, an organization at its wholeness and go, okay, right, what are the success measures that we've used? Um, where are we seeing improvement? And then why are we seeing that improvement? And it might just so be in the um, deconstruct of that, uh, almost like an autopsy, I suppose, um, that something happened in the learning world. It's like, ah, look, learning was catalytic there. And, and because people had this growth mindset, that happened. Uh, and because people worked on their relationships, this has made a difference. Um, and I'd rather see it done like that, like a whole systems version of evaluation, not just some kind of tiny thread of a learning intervention, but bloody impossible to prove anyway. Um, so I think my answer to financiers who are saying, how much is this going to cost and what's the return? It's like, right, ask that question of everybody involved in performance improvement, we'll come together on it and then we'll give you your answer. Um, but I think we've been individually hijacked a bit by things like finance. So I'd, I'd like us to stop doing that. <laughs> Completely agree, completely agree. So, I mean, 70-20-10, I guess, yep. is, is slightly different. I think 70-20-10 makes it easy for the person not in, say, learning development to understand. It's easy to kind of just wrap something up in a bow and go, 70-20-10, there you go. And people can latch onto a a term quicker than they can latch onto the thing, what it, it, it stands for, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think my, my take on 70-20-10 on is kind of, it's probably created just to make things easier to explain to people within yeah. the business Great. but but how how do we stop it becoming just another big buzzword which i mean which already is fundamentally it's probably not needed but if it's not that what's what's the next big buzzword they're going to latch onto? yeah i mean let's put it this way i've never been massively like inspired by 72010 but i've never equally been like turned off by it either i've kind of like you thought oh that's a convenient shorthand to describe stuff that i've been experiencing as a non-lnd professional and then an lnd professional so i thought it's been quite helpful just to give people that sense of something a little bit like five a day um and all that kind of stuff do you know what i mean yeah but i think if you were to then you know direct your entire dietary policy on five a day it wouldn't be the right kind of thing to do so equally i wouldn't set your entire learning agenda based around just three segments that define a fairly random and fluctuating thing that happens in the learning game so when people say yeah we've adopted the 70 20 10 model i'm like you've, you've adopted it really or did you just discover you were doing it anyway so that's just a convenient way to frame it so i'd be more interested in saying when do people need the learning and how do they get it best is that on the job is that with a coach or a mentor or a partner uh, or is that by virtue of some longer tail academically validated program of learning that means that to go to a business school or whatever um and and fixate less on perhaps what portions are people spending their time in and start thinking what what can we do to measure the impacts the pressure points uh, the successes, the rep replicable practices, it doesn't matter where they sit, but we can describe those so that you can get more um, repetition and uh, replication by people, uh, or they use it to inspire their learning journey. Uh, I suppose the entire philosophy I've had on learning for quite some time is, I'd rather spend a lot of time with people saying it's your learning, so can you be the construct and architect with partners who can help you with solutions rather than you know you pick off a menu or you're um, ordained by your manager uh, or you're foisted onto a program by the corporation so my suspicion is if you give learning program responsibility to the individual they don't really care whether it's 70 20 or 10 they just want the right thing that serves their need to get them what they want which is growth mastery uh, success, whatever, that kind of thing. So that's kind of my view on it. Okay. 
cool. I mean, it, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, people people want to be able to wrap something up. And I think, you know, yeah. you, you mentioned that chance are you probably already doing something similar to this. And I see this a lot within design thinking right now. So yeah. I, I personally believe any good experiential kind of designer has been doing design thinking since he got into it. That's the reason what steps him out from the other people, the other True. designers. Um, yeah. But what, what I have also noticed right now is because design thinking has become the next big buzzword and yeah. people love putting it on there. Now there's an instant process, which we must work to. And I'm like, well, you kind of taken out the creative flair of actually yeah. by putting in a process, are you limiting that with design thinking? It's, it's an interesting yeah. debate. Um, I'm, I'm probably a little bit responsible for some of the design thinking buzz. Cause like I've got a little bit deeper into the methodology ironically from working through things like agile and uh that kind of stuff uh, um but I, I guess yeah i refuse to indoctrinate this kind of thing and i i'd be worried if people are slavishly following something like ideas version of how you do design it's like it's there for inspiration it's there for guidance but actually you're right as a good learning designer you've probably been doing this for quite some time and this is just a validating source of uh, what you're doing and perhaps a little bit of inspiration you might want to take because perhaps you didn't take enough empathy with your learners so this gives you a chance to see the world through their eyes again so yeah so maybe there's something as a stimulus and a boost rather than a let's just jump on it and that becomes our new thing and everything else we used to do before is now redundant yeah i completely agree i completely agree and i guess that leads us on to the next question actually mm. with, with very smooth subtle ones <laughs> so i'm going to say a few buzzwords and i kind of want you to tell me what comes to mind when i say these okay so we've kind of touched on design thinking so i'm gonna have to yeah. come with one on the spot but um okay. so let's talk about it first social media okay so uh reaction that comes to mind is powerful learning tool uh but it's getting noisier and messier and more difficult to find the right kind of content and the right people to connect to about that content okay digital learning um a strange term really for me i i think it's perhaps content that is uh created for use on platforms apps networks and devices um, but it's probably stuff that exists now and it's just synthesized for a digital medium. Okay. Okay. Next one is learners engagement. Uh, yeah, it kind of goes back to the point I said earlier on. I don't, I don't think that's prevalent enough in our thinking. I think we expect people to be willing consumers of learning, but, um, my experience is if you as a learning professional don't provide it, they find it somewhere else. So there's a need and if you're not careful they'll find it from outside you so learner experience i think is something we ought to have a little bit higher in our um priority activities okay and the last one um classroom training okay um classroom training makes me feel like some regimented and endured thing so um i quite like terms that are a bit more about facilitation and participation so classroom training feels like it's a little bit too indoctrinated and, and force-fed. Um, so that's what comes to mind. Okay, perfect. So Perry, if I was to ask you a book, what, you know, if you was to give a, um, a book as a present yeah. to three people, yeah. what mm. book would you give them? Um, it, it's a book by a marketing guy called Paul Arden. Uh, and it's called, it's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be. Um, it's a very typical marketer's book. It's got lots of big images and lots of big words and kind of slightly random feel to it. But if you're just looking for something that inspires you and sparks and uh, gives you different metaphorical thought processes, uh, I, I found it unbeatable. Okay. Thank you. I'll, um, I'll definitely check that out and I'll put that in the yep. show notes as well. Cool. So, you know, we talk in, in, in the world where we're always looking at trying to be more efficient and stuff like that. What mm. What's your biggest... 80 20 hacks so example being you know 20 percent of the contacts on my phone i dial 80 percent of the time where the other 80 percent of the contacts i only dial 20 percent. so yeah. what's your biggest hack with kind of what's one thing you do which brings in the most kind of investment maybe it's an investment of free time creativity i don't know use that however wow. you like that's a good one um i would say of late i've taken everything that feels even slightly on the large side and broken it down to as tiny a modularized granularized thing as possible um 
because I think we still look at everything in, in, in its scale as too big and try and tackle it. But I think it, we're like, that's made up of lots and lots and lots of little bits. So I try and atomize it, I guess I'd say is the word. So my, my hack is, uh, I, if I spend 80% of my time breaking things down, the 20% of doing that results in it is more effective and more powerful. Okay, perfect. So, you know, the idea of this podcast, Perry, is, is to talk mm. about the people behind the learning and the people behind the change, HR, be it, wherever you want. Yeah. So, you know, you've had quite, from looking at, you know, your social stalking, me and your LinkedIn, you've had yeah. quite, a, quite a good career in different places, I guess. What's the yeah. one thing that's happened to you? Maybe in the moment it was deemed a negative and you're like, oh, no, this was this wasn't what I wanted. And then further on down the line, it's actually been one of your most positive and kind of, yeah, most positive moments. So I guess your best negative yeah. positive. So yeah, I, that can come to mind. I, so I was working on technology projects, which were enabling massive change in the court service at the time. And then the governments uh, of the time pulled funding to lots and lots of government departments. And so all of a sudden we were left in a program situation where we just had no money. Um, and so, I was obviously subject to some kind of redeployment discussion, but before that was even thrown into the mix, I'd been um, on a leadership program and I'd asked for some mentoring from the um, then HR director at the court service. And I went into a mentoring session and I floated this by and I said, look, I've got this situation where I love the work I do, but it's likely to disappear and funding's gone and I don't know what to do next. And we did this whole kind of career mapping thing where it's like, what do you love doing? Where do you get your energy from? Who do you like working with? What results do you always look for in your work? And, and all of it led to some kind of learning and training type of role. And anyway, she had a vacancy uh, and, and, and I got that role. So, uh, but I wouldn't have even thought about that as an absolute career venture had a the program being ceased to operate and, and then be some advice from somebody who was a, you know, an HR professional. So um, I might have ruled myself out of a training role at the time going, I've got no certificate in training practice. I haven't got any HR qualifications. Uh, so I would probably have uh, just looked for another project role and then who knows where I would have ended up. So that negative turned into a huge positive. Okay. Interesting. So, you know, in, in your expertise and, you know, the stuff are kind of what's, What's the best, the best bit of bad advice you hear in the in the industry? What we're in, the best bit of bad advice. Yeah, so like, um, I use the best bit of advice because you know, yeah. I think no matter whatever industry you're in, you're always going to hear bad yeah. advice. But guess yeah. what's the one that really jumps out to you? Yeah. Um. So I think there's there's this whole approach which says if you're in a rubbish job, uh, you should just give it up and then follow your heart type thing. And I'm often thinking, well. Your heart's not going to pay the mortgage if you're committed and all that kind of stuff. So before you do anything like that, you've got to really build yourself up to being self-sufficient. So I do see sometimes some people who are a little bit flippant in the whole, oh, just change your job or just go into freelancing or interim work or something. That's a big deal for a lot of people. So that, that advice often feels like a little bit like they've read a meme on the internet which says you can be what you want to be and then just offer that in. It's like, I think people need a little bit more than that. So um, I'm a bit of a dreamer, but I also like to think you've got practicalities to uh, handle in life. So, you know, don't get burned by just some ridiculously uh, unrationalized uh, aspiration that somebody might want to foist on you as advice. Okay, great, great advice. So, you know, let's let's get into kind of um, HR and mm. and yeah, let's open. Let's do exactly what we did with Berlin. So, what is the future of HR, Perry? Yeah, well, I think it's not what it is now. So, a lot of this processing and dispute resolution and compliance and all that kind of stuff. I think most of that's going to get either automated or the sort of frame of reference for it is going to change. So. Um, I often say this to HR colleagues of mine, which is that, you know, the future is not that far away from those sort of things being um, completely unnecessary and therefore you're irrelevant. Um, so then I think it's in, in what else and what other areas? Well, we, we don't know what skills people need. We don't know what roles people are going to have in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. 
if you look at the stats about automation, they vary from 47% to 13% or whatever, but there are lots of things where the work we are currently engaged in now is likely to be delivered in a, uh, an automated way. So it should free up some people's time to do something of a bit more value. Um, so I think HR has got to be a little bit better at responsive uh, design of organizations, roles, and success criteria, reward, uh, working patterns, whatever that is. Um, I think it's also got to be a little bit more in tune with the, um, the needs of society, community, and, and, and beyond the workplace boundary, because I think they're realizing now that people's lives and their work are so intertwined. So, you know, where they live and how they commute and the pressures they're under, the hours they work and all that kind of thing. People are a whole thing. They're not just, a, a, you know, a clock on, clock off type of uh, additional uh, biological device. Um, and then there's this whole thing about super feats of endeavor that people seem to pull out of the bag when they're inspired and uh, channeled with energy and belief and all that kind of stuff. And, and so little work has that feel to it that I think there's a there's a sense of connecting people to something that's that's feeling of value and merit to, to other people, not just servicing a machine and a puppet engine. Um, there's a lot to be said about how the workplace and work roles can be redesigned. So I think HR's got to up its design game quite considerably. It's got to be really techie savvy and understand what is coming over the hill to disrupt and change and challenge the way we do work now um, and be much more into the um, more spiritual side of human beings to, to, to give them a sense of worth and value. Um, if you look at some of the stats about uh, stress absences uh, and Jeffrey Pfeffer's book on dying for a paycheck and all that kind of stuff, there are warning signs around that the way we're doing it is just not anywhere near where it should be. So I think they've got a lot of work to do. Okay. So what what, what companies, if any, spring to mind who, who are kind of on the right path for this and kind of who are, who are already doing the future of HR, of HR mm. what, what companies spring to mind there? So uh, there's a big company everybody will have heard of because they've probably got the spray can in the garage, which is WD40. Um, they have a very humanist CEO. They work in what they call tribal units, which are very attached to each other and their part in the business. Um, they uh, encourage experimentation. They're always thinking about um, new products, new services, new ways, new relationships. They seem to be powered by new, even though the product has been around for ages. Um, so they've got a really interesting philosophy for a, you know, a chemical slash, uh, you know, consumer product uh, organization. So they interest me a lot, and they they aren't what you consider to be, you know, the most top of the mind when you talk about a, a glamorous company that provides uh, amazing workplace experiences. Everybody jumps to Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and all those other kinds of giants. Um, then I'm interested in some of the um, technology world uh, and how they've almost been able to overcome the cliches of fake grass, dogs, and uh, you know, uh, food on demand. Um, but have created spaces where people can um, move very fluidly around the work and, and create a sort of a team-oriented uh, feel like Spotify spring to mind. They seem to be doing pretty well in that world. Um, there's a technology company I've written about in the book called Widen, who are uh, built on the spirit of eudaimonia, which means human flourishing. Um, they do some great things with uh, people with learning disabilities from the community. Um, they're very democratic and participative. Uh, people feel it's their business. Um, and I'm quite fascinated by the employee ownership uh, agenda. So I like to see examples where companies are owned from their employees. And I think the future might be a lot more of that. So. Uh, that's anybody from John Lewis with their profit sharing um, to uh, a whole range of uh, organizations of smaller sizes who have got people who've got more than a vested interest in their company succeeding because it's theirs. Okay. I, I think, you know, being able to bring it back to the people is massive. I, I was reading yesterday about an article of um, how companies invest back in, in, in their people in the form of yeah. um, experiences. So, you know, yeah. experiences what they might not be able to do. Maybe it's, I don't know, going walking, a trek, or, or, yeah. or doing something that was kind of giving back to people, but not in the form of kind of money and, you know, here's here's a new, I don't know, a new whatever, insert any product you want, but actually giving yeah. back to in, in the form of an, a, an experience that we wouldn't have been able to get. Yeah. Um, 
And I just think it's actually really interesting. And I think GoPro, the one who did the action yeah. camera, they yeah. used to always allow you to kind of work on your own project as well, yeah. your own thing. Because he said that that yeah. kind of balances out the thing of you giving to the company, but they're also giving back to, for your own product. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much of that trade that, that companies are missing out on. They think that people might, you know, I don't know, create something crazy, damage it, I don't know, whatever it is. But but rarely have I seen when people have been given the time and the capacity to work on something they want, that it's been frivolous. It's always been something that's a problem nobody else seems to care about. But if they solve it, it can create huge gains and, and differences. So... Um, I really like that sort of method where it's almost like people are aligning themselves and kind of designing their work based on problems they see they need to solve. They're not getting permission for them. They're allowed to get on with them. They're supported. Um, and so I ran a hackathon out in Slovenia and this group came up with a brilliant idea where they, you were allowed to start a project and management had up to 48 hours to not veto it, but to intervene. And if they chose to ignore it, you, you got on with that project and delivered it. And so only if they thought it was something they needed to, you know, advise or guide or, or even stop because they thought it was renegade. Um, they had a 48 hour window to do that. And I thought that was a lovely way of upturning the permission cycle from you have to seek permission uh, from managers, which can often slow things down to, you know, sclerotic nature. And there's no point in doing it to no, just get on the front foot and then it's up to managers to keep up with you i thought that was lovely yeah yeah there's, there's something kind of a little bit humbling about that as well i find you know being able yeah. to kind of you know predominantly most people's projects side projects are, are something of passion so it's a passion yeah. project to them i guess you know when i was thinking about setting up my own company one of the biggest things one of the big pillars for me was for every time i work with a company i will yeah. work i will give back to the community yeah. through yeah. two um, programs which are designed one was around creative being continuing to be creative even though you know <laughs> schools kind of pull that out of us and the second yeah. one is kind of something what I called the passport to work scheme which was giving oh. young adults the skills and stuff to make their way back into you oh, know cool. into corporate but like it was just about giving back to the community but maybe even working in partnership with with a, with a company to say you know mm. you're doing this with us as well and I just feel like you know anything has got fundamentally HR is, is a, it's a business of people and yeah. I think what we see more and more now is that the, the human touch of HR is slow yeah. but surely disappearing. Yeah, and, and needs to come back big time because, like I say, when the bots and the tech and all that is doing all that, then, then human stuff is where they'll need to show up a bit more, I think. Um, again, I think you've had a really interesting point here, which is that if more companies were aware of the positive impact, a, po a proper charitable or societal communal um, element was it would allow people to spend time doing that increase company reputation uh you know potentially provide a talent pipeline for people who are advantaged by a company doing something towards them in education or whatever so i i don't know why we don't do more of that corporate social responsibility was supposed to be about that but it's been people just posting stats on how their carbon footprint's a bit less oh and they had a away day and painted a community centre. It's like it's got to be more than that. It's got to be sustainable and long term and regularised and human and decided at individual level. So uh, you're really on something there. Learning experiences and giving back and company rep and all that. I think that's a really powerful um, opportunity that companies miss out on and, and HR ought to be pushing that. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. So what? You know, in, in, your, in your role, you, you probably get to touch, you know, meet lots of new people and lots of new faces. And what who's who's probably the three people who's maybe challenging the thinking? Maybe if it's new up-and-comers, maybe it's people you've worked with in the past. Who's who's three people or, yeah, who you would probably say to people who are listening, you should you yeah. know, follow these guys? Oh, yeah, okay. So uh, David James, um, who's uh, at uh, Loop, uh, ex uh, Disney stores, uh, head of L&D and so on. David's got a great way of framing the language we use, the models we adopt, and just the approach we take in, in learning. So so he's good. I think on Twitter he's at David in learning. So, so he's always challenging things. I always look out for his stuff and go, oh, he's off on one now, and I often join in on that. <laughs> um, so that's good. Cool. Um, I think um, uh, Matt Ash, 
who leads learning at Media Zoo is up to some really clever things and some good thinking and some very nicely uh, well thought through philosophies that he's putting back into the, the learner business. So um, he, he I, I definitely would uh, see as a growing force, I suppose, in, in the power that um, a properly aligned learning professional can, can deliver. Um, let's try and think in this way. Um, well, well, actually, I'll default to our connection, Barbara Thompson, because um, she's got an energy and a creativity and artistry to learn in that I think people can, can definitely learn from and, and, and there's more to come from Barbara in terms of significance in the learning uh, industry. So uh, watch that one. Yes, completely agree. Babs is, is um, a very unique snowflake, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's 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 brilliant. I can't I can't say enough about Babs. Yeah, and good, good. I'm a, I am planning on getting her on this podcast at, at, at some point, but yeah. for, for one reason or another, we just can't get our divers to align at the moment, so it's yeah. a bit tricky. Worth pushing that one, mate. Yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. So <laughs> let's go back into kind of HR and, and the book. Let's talk about the book. So okay, tell me where this idea of a book come from, and tell me what what your you know why why the the urge for this book kind of yeah. I promote you, yeah, to kind of push and, and get this book out there. So the trail came when the publisher contacted me and said, we have a title that we think uh, you might be the right author for. And of course, that's a nice thing to happen. So when they said it was Transformation Late Charles, I was like, oh, yeah. So when I set up the business, I wanted it to be a reflection of me, but also stand for something. So um, the initials PT are obviously mine. And I thought, oh, that also equals people and transformational HR. So when the company said, we think you're the author for it, I, I actually said to them, why me? And they said, look, when, whenever we searched and tried to find people that were talking about transformation in HR, you came up. So I said to them, oh, yeah, but you do know my company's got transformation in HR in its title, so I'm bound to. Um, but they said, well, we took that out of the search equations and, and our investigations and it still led back to you. So I was like, okay, in that case, then um, maybe I shouldn't resist the um, opportunity, but I wanted to do it clearly. So I put the proposal together and uh, so it still had to be approved. And, and that was interesting because I hadn't conceived the book, but given just the title, I thought I could have a go at this. So I did put together a, like a 10 chapter structure of, if I read a book like this, what I would hope it would cover um, and thought I dare be a little bit bold in places and, and whether I've got the right um, content in whatever to justify it. I thought I'd set out what I thought I'd like to read and what others I thought would like to read. And if I didn't have that content, I'd go and find it by the time the book was due to be written. And they liked it um, and they gave me the deadline and it was April of 2017. So I had about four and a half months. Um, what was fortunate though, was that I had the inkling for a, a bit of a writing project. So about four months prior to getting asked to write a book, I'd been out to the States and I'd researched companies and I found lots of inspiring and alternative sort of ways of getting the best out of people in the workplace. So I thought hmm, I can use that. So I did. Um, that helped the writing process. But I literally locked myself away for four months and immerse myself in what I hoped would be something that people would be inspired, provoked and guided by. Um, and so far the reaction has been pretty good. So I'm, I'm quite happy about that. It made people management's top five HR reads of 2017. And I wow. couldn't have wished for a better response than that. So, um, but yeah, I wanted it to be something that said, look, HR, please don't just sit there thinking everybody will need HR like you've got it forever because they won't. And so my suggestion is to step into something a little bit more needed by people in the world of work. And, and, and you can only call that transformation because it will never be the same again. Okay. Okay, great. So, so for people who, who haven't got a book and I guess if I was to push yep. you and, you know, yep. gun to the head and said, right, these people yep. can only read one chapter out of your book. Yeah. Which chapter would you say is the most important for them to read? Oh, okay. I would probably say chapter 12 then, which is kind of at the end. Because um, I, I built the story of HR up to now. So it's past and then it's current. And then I sort of made a little bit of a, a 
sort of an assessment through HR from existing models like disruptive innovation and uh, five forces and all that. Uh, but chapter 12, I pretty much said, here's where I think the direction lies with um, uh, a slightly different model, some different mindsets, some skills. Um, and, and I suppose that's the one that unwraps uh, a little bit more of the gift inside the box that says, here's what I think you could use. Okay. So if, if I was to say to you, right, Perry, yeah. you can have, you can have a billboard, which will be right outside yeah. of, outside a football stadium. And all the thousands yeah. of people are going to come out from that football stadium and they're going to yeah. read what you put on that billboard. What yeah. message, quote, I don't know. What, what would you have that billboard say? Uh, so I talk about it as uh, HR's metamorphosis for a transforming world of work. But that's to appeal to existing professionals, really. But I suppose if I wanted it to appeal to everybody, whether they were HR or not, I would want it to be something like, you know, designs of a better future for all of us at work, um, dot, 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 um, with HR as your friend in, uh, or comrade in arms or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So... That's a great question, by the way. No, no, it's fine, thanks. What's, you know, I want to touch upon employee experience, and maybe, maybe kind of more mm. around the, the onboarding experience in the first 30 to 60, maybe 90 days of when you come into a company to when you, you know, the first mm. three months. And I think that is something which companies are now jumping on board of and realising the importance yeah. of it, and, you know, they probably have been doing for a while, to be honest. But is there any, is there any companies, are, in fact, that's, that's before we even get to that question, what what do you think is the fundamentally important point of an onboarding? Um, so these are people who've got loads of energy, but also perhaps lacking a little bit of confidence and competence because they don't quite know how this new company does things. So I, I always think they're coming at it from a from a massively high energy, but a low, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of traction point because they feel frustrated by the fact that they've got so much energy, they just want to get on with this new job and meet new people and whatever, but they feel frustrated. They don't know the protocols, they haven't worked away, who's doing what, and all that kind of stuff. So anything that can, can close that gap, I think, is great. So combine the energy with instant you know, wins, instant credibility, instant impact. So, um, again, it comes back to this, everything's too big and let's deconstruct it so i think people should have like you know a few wins in hour one as soon as they start in that company then a few wins in day one and then a few wins in day uh, week day two week one etc etc i think you know you could construct it almost like a, a platform game where they just acquire stars or rings or things and you know what i mean tackle the big bosses and and I'm not saying that we should gamify it, so let's not jump down that one. But I'm just using that as a metaphor, really, that, that when you're new, you want to make a difference immediately. So let's give them stuff that they can make a difference immediately. And I think you'll find people going, wow, if this place can look after me this well, I'm in for the long haul. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. I think another thing which people tend to overlook within kind of onboarding experiences is, is what I call the little big things. So oh, yeah. it's a tiny things which kind of get overlooked because yeah. you know fundamentally the people who are designing these onboarding experiences tend to have got used to all these little big things i mean just normal day-to-day -day life and we, we i think we can sometimes run the risk of overlooking the tiny things like overlooking yeah. just the, the tiny things which we use day-to-day -day life and i guess my question would be is how 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 can we change people's mindset mindsets of the designers of the onboarding experiences <laughs> to kind of walk back in them shoes of, of being a yeah. newbie yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think if I go back to my first time in learning, my director at the time, who was like the operational director for a region, he said, uh, he said, if you can crack induction, he said, I'm sure you'll be minted, he said, because in all my time in the world of work, I've never seen a good induction that was either timely, relevant, uh, you know, good content, all that kind of thing. And I thought, Oh, how interesting is that? Because like I've, I'd only worked for that one employer uh, for about 20 years, but I had about three-year cycles of different jobs. So I only ever had one induction. And I thought to myself, I haven't had to experience an induction forever. Uh, and so if we were serving up some day PowerPoint-led talking heads thing, 
I probably would have tolerated that. But he came to me with that challenge and I thought, ooh, what can we do? And, and so I joined some people like Orange and M&S and a few other companies who were trying to create a better induction experience, as it was called on the time. And, and we discussed all sorts of um, uh, different gateways and uh, needs at different times and the role of managers and buddies. And, and I think we got some good stuff out of it. I brought some of that back and we made it considerably better but it just felt like it was still the thing that we didn't get right yet it was the place where we needed to make the best impression on people who joined us i'm like how can we have tolerated this forever so hearing you say about tiny things and uh, you know having a more experiential view of it and getting our designers to go yeah if i'm walking in their shoes what is it i need to know when where and how and what do i send them on a boot camp for two weeks so that they learn all the technical stuff and then they get unleashed on us do we have like almost like a two day social where we don't do any work? We just get to know each other. I don't know. But I think you're right about that. We need to design it from a point of empathy and uh, lived experience much more than we still do now. Okay. So let's get back into who Perry Timms is again. Yeah. So okay. if I say to say to Perry, Tam, how would you explain what you do to a three year old? How would, <laughs> how would you do that? How would you explain what I do to a three year old? That's a brilliant question. I would say I spend my time working with people to give them the most choice and enjoyment out of the stuff they do when they become 23. Okay. 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 I like that. I like it. I get it. It's a great question. So, you know, I think one of the things which, which, which we probably, you know, we could probably talk all day on really, to be honest, but let's just, we'll just fly through it. When, what, you know, within the industry what you what we're working in and kind of if i was to say to you in the 60 year old 70 year old perry is going to be able to give you a bit of advice now what what do you think the advice would be to perry, to perry oh now? wow um so i love pace and variety and all that kind of stuff i think if I'm doing that advice piece, I would encourage a little bit less pace and a little bit more pressure. I'd encourage a little less variety and a little bit more appreciation of what's here right now. Because um, I am a bit of a dreamer and I do live in the future, I often say that, and I quite like that I'm there because I want to design it better. But I've got to be a little bit more centred and anchored and appreciative of what's around me right now. Okay. So what's if I was to say to you, Perry, look, you can have you can relive two two hours out of your working day, a bit like Groundhog Day, and you have to relive oh, yeah. these two hours over and over and over again. Which yeah. which two hours of your working day would you would you choose? Um, I'm always good in the morning, so I guess it would be the first two hours because those first two hours are, are filled with anticipation, uh, planning, uh, scenarioing, and catching up and just feeling energized and excited about the possibilities. Um, so I'd say if I could relive those two hours, well, I kind of do in a way, but, but if the whole day could be made up of very similar feels to that, yeah, I'd be happy. Okay. And what, is it, is it anything within HR, L&D, what, you know, in our industry, let's just yeah. put a nice yeah. big ribbon around it and what yeah. that encompasses. But is there anything that you've seen, um, an idea which you've seen out there, which you wish you came up with? And you're like, God Ooh. damn it! I wish I, I wish I come up with that one. Oh wow, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, um, I do. Um, I suppose I am quite taken by things like open space, uh, non-agenda-led stuff. So I probably would have loved to have come up with that. So, um, uh, you know, just a space where people discover, where agendas are created by people there, and there's a very loose but nonetheless guiding process. I've used that so many times, I thought, oh, I'd love to have been known as the inventor of that, because it's pretty powerful when it's done right. Uh, and within it lies, of course, a whole range of things like World Cafe and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I'd say I'd love to have invented open space. Okay you've done you you know you've talked you've done lots of talks around the future of hr and kind of yeah. transformational hr 
And I, I was watching um, a recent TEDx talk, I think, with you. Yeah. Maybe it was yeah. yesterday, actually. Yeah. What's What's the biggest learnings you've got from doing a TEDx talk? Oh, um, so I did one on Saturday, and then that one you watched is from about three and a half years ago. So the first one was massively exciting. I didn't want to cliche it and uh, I wanted it to be quite natural and raw and so I didn't over prepare um, and as a result of it I think I had such an adrenaline rush about that whole experience that it was a bit of a blur so the second time round, I had the choice then to do the same again and do it really raw and almost like improv or be a little bit more planful and, so, and I took the planful approach oh and I enjoyed it so much more because it wasn't an adrenaline-led blur, it was it was still energetic, it was a bit more deliberate, I could appreciate it, I was present. So I think it's that. I think it's um, decide whether you want to come across as, you know, improved and, and raw and almost a bit street, like, you know, spoken word stuff, or do you want to be a little bit more like, this is my slot, I've got a get it ready, know what I'm saying and work it and then deliver it and experience it in a different way. So I think if you're going to do a TEDx, do it spoken word raw or a little bit more um, staged. Okay. So I was, um, I kind of kept up with the, the, uh, the updates of, of that event, which was at, it was actually through Babs. Babs was kind of That's keeping right. me in the loop yeah, around she it. Was there, she? Yeah. yeah, and she mentioned something around um, some. It, it could have been you. It was a very brief yeah. one. I was I was just about to drive off about a reference to a battery and the energy. Oh yeah, that battery. was me. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. 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 So yeah. so what what can we through that? So I was thinking about how when people go to work, they are uh, full of energy for the day, and they get given all their work, and that energy depletes. And rarely during the day do they get any regeneration. They don't get any recharge. And, and so at the end of the day, they go home or do their hobbies or whatever it is. And that's how they recharge. I mean, quite literally, they sleep, obviously. But, uh, and so I thought this is just like a smartphone that you just use during the day. It depletes and then you plug it in overnight and it's ready and then it just depletes. And you just go through this cycle. And I thought, I'm sure it doesn't have to be like that. I'm sure you could literally plug your phone in a bit during the day and the metaphor there is that we do things that are energizing. We create opportunities for us to be energized by our work, not just, you know, depleted by the energy we throw into it. So, yeah, so I was trying to get that message across, and I, I think it lacked it. Yeah, I, I think so too. After speaking with, you know, with Babs with regards to it, it she, she pretty much pretty much said yeah. the exact same for what you just said. Cool. There, so That's it must have come across. Good stuff, yeah. So... You know, we're getting to the kind of the hour mark now, so I guess it's time cool. to start wrapping up. But, but it, what what are you? Is there something new what you are learning at the moment? And and if so, what is that? And how are you? How are you learning that new yeah. task, that skill, or? Yeah. Um, new task, new skill. That's... So I, I think well, there's two two things I'll I'll cover with that one. If that's okay um philosophy i am looking a little bit more into both classic and uh, sort of modern philosophy partly because i just love the thoughtfulness and the phraseology and the depth that people go to when they're in a philosophical sort of uh, frame so that's one thing i'm definitely learning so i want to be more philosophical and use philosophy more um, and then i think the other one is probably getting into this whole understanding of people and age um, and so that involves a lot more about the physical side of us and the mental side of us, about what, what stimulates us, what sparks us, how we, how we create more energy within ourselves. So that's a bit of perhaps neuroscience, perhaps a little bit of biology, but also psychology. So I'm learning a bit more about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like, are we talking like the long, long lines like Socrates or are we talking a bit more modern than that? And, um, I think a little bit more modern. So I'm I'm looking at people like Anthony Gottlieb and Charles Eisenstein as two names that spring to mind. But um, yeah, but also then some you know Nietzsche and Kant and all sorts of stuff. So I, I'm trying to just let myself be a little bit random and go where I, where I am drawn to rather than have a sort of catalogue and a chronology to go through. Um, but I think there's something in in all areas of philosophy that um, is a profoundly um, underused to say in the modern world okay so let's just touch upon that a touch and so w with you know 
in in, the, in our ever busy days, you know, due to the noise, what comes from kind of day to day life, what yeah. ha, what do you do and how do you do it? Um, when you start losing focus or or you know you're lacking in that creative flow, is there anything you do to kind of regain regain that focus and that that creative flow slash flair? Yeah, yeah. So that that's something I was more tuned into when I wrote the book. So um, and it's kind of followed through with me since. So um, you know, doing a seriously detailed piece of writing is probably a good thing for anybody to do. Um, so I learned to sort of manage my energy and uh, application based on, I suppose, how I was feeling and what I was um, picking up about the quality of the work I was doing. If I wasn't happy with it, rather than just trying to, you know, correct it, I would just leave it and just find myself energised by some form of distraction. So that could come from people, from content, um, looking for some inspiration, just doing something different. So I've learned to not push when I am just not up for it. Um, and instead I go and find something totally different to, um, like I say, distract myself, I guess. Um, so that's one element I think about uh, understanding your rhythm, uh, your tendencies. And I don't know about you, but I have a to-do list that's always ridiculously ambitious for every day. So rather than persecute myself for not completing it, um, I'm starting to get a little bit more sensible about how I set myself up for the day in terms of like, what do I want to achieve? And, what do I need to do for others and all that kind of stuff and uh, and check in on that as regularly as I can and make it more sensible so um, rather than thinking I'm going to solve you know world poverty and the fuel crisis um, I'm thinking well let's just find out a bit more information about poverty and, and look into alternative fuels and just break it down again it's that chunking down thing I like to do so yeah that's how I think I cope with that okay so Let's let's go right back. Let's do a full loop right from where we started. So right at the beginning okay. of the call, um, yeah. I asked you to pick some numbers out. And the idea is pretty yeah. simple. These numbers tally to a random list of items which I've got. Ah. Okay, so the you're stuck on a desert island and the numbers which yeah. you had give you this this list of stuff. So <laughs> okay, you have yeah. a hair tie, yeah, a coat hanger, yeah, a model car, and a Sharpie pen. What do you do with these items on a desert island? So a hair tie, a model cam, a sharpie pen, and what was the other thing? A coat hanger. Okay, right. So uh, I can use the hair tie to affix two pieces of uh, uh, wood uh, to then affix two more. So I'll use them to create like a pyramid, um, and then I'll go and find some huge leaves, and they will cover those four sides of a triangular build to make me a tent. Um, I will use the coat hanger. Oh God, what am I going to use that for? Um, I will use that to create a, uh, an extension to my arm so I can reach coconuts and fruit and trees that I wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Um, what will we do with the model car? Um, I will use the model car as uh, a potential booby trap for anybody who's trying to get in the door of the tent of the tent, <laughs> so they tread on it. Um, and what was the other thing? It was a Sharpie pen. Oh, Sharpie pen. Oh, well, I'll use that to write SOS on some massive thing that I find. Uh, so, uh, of course, Sharpie's rule is good for that. So I think that's what I'll do. Okay. Awesome use of tools there. So... <laughs> Right at the beginning of the um, call, I asked you, you know, what what did you want to be when you grow older? Now, fundamentally, yeah. we are people. We constantly develop. We never really stop growing up, and we're constantly learning. So if I was to ask you now, Perry, what yeah. is it you want to be when you grow older? What would you say? Yeah. Um, I think I'd like to be like a full-time author or something. I'd love to just write and write and write and write. I, I love that. So whether I could play around with a bit of fiction or still stick to the sort of, you know, business world or whatever. Um, yeah, I would just love to write for the rest of my life, yeah. Okay, superb. So, Perry, for the people who are listening, what's, how can people reach out to Perry? How can we find out a bit more about you, a bit more about what you're up to in your day-to-day? Yeah. So LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Facebook, uh, not really on Instagram much. Um, there's some YouTube stuff. I blog on Medium. Um, so those are sort of easy ways to get hold of me. Um, 
I've got a website, www.pthr.co.uk. Um, I'm going to make that a little bit more dynamic and, and put some more fresh content on that. Um, but yeah, I just sort of pop up on social conferences, those kind of things. So um, I'm, I'm normally found somewhere. Okay, awesome. Well, Perry, listen, it's been, it's been great. It's been great having you on. And yeah, thanks Thank for you. taking the time out. Enjoyed it. Great. Uh, amazing questions. So I uh, hope that uh, sounds good on playback. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Cheers, Perry. Cool. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.